I would just say there's so many beneficial aspects to working with nature to really be a part of this greater ecosystem. I know that I've really treasured that time and I think beekeeping has really allowed me to recenter and to return to myself in a way. And I think that's reflected in many of the stories that I share in the book as well. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Emma. What's new this week? Well, it's a new month for one thing. Yes. Hello, November. And where we live, the arrival of colder weather. And now that we've passed the halfway mark between the fall equinox and the winter solstice, it really does have a whole different vibe, doesn't it? It's so true. October is so sunny and bright and colorful and blue skies. And and even if it's chilly, it feels warm and the sunshine. And there's so many fun things like apple picking and pumpkin carving and all that. And then November just sort of seems colder and quieter all of a sudden. Yeah, moodier. Yeah. There's this beautiful poem by Robert Frost that describes that it's always been one of my favorites. Oh, can you share it? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) I just have it right here with me. (laughs) Oh, how convenient. Yes, it was called My November Guest, and I will read it. My sorrow, when she's here with me, thinks these dark days of autumn rain are beautiful as days can be. She loves the bear, the withered tree. She walks the sodden pasture lane. Pleasure will not let me stay. She talks, and I am fain to list. She's glad the birds are gone away. She's glad her simple worsted gray is silver now with clinging mist. The desolate, deserted trees, the faded earth, the heavy sky, the beauties she so truly sees. She thinks I have no eye for these and vexes me for reason why. Not yesterday. I learned to know the love of bare November days before the coming of the snow, but it were vain to tell her so, and they are better for her praise. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah, I especially love the lines, not yesterday, I learned to know the love of bare November days before the coming of the snow. Yeah. I love that. I think he's describing that moment when you begin thinking about winter before it actually arrives. You kind of have to prepare for it in your head, like a psychological shift. And nature sort of helps us do that by being November, whatever that is. Yeah. And that's what we had in mind when we were thinking about this year's virtual slow living retreat. Like, how did we want to frame it? We're all about seasonal living and it's so easy to love and look forward to all of the seasons. But I think winter might be one that's hardest for some people, particularly with the cold and being inside more and shorter days, the prolonged 
darkness, certainly. Sometimes a sense of loneliness, especially during the holidays. It's really hard for some people. Yeah. And especially right after the holidays, I think a lot of times we just sort of January and February and March sort of go into a blur and they're like really hard months. So the holidays can be fun for some people. I think really hard for others. And that time after the holidays, I think kind of hard for everyone. So we are looking to reframe it a little and we're calling this year's gathering Embrace Winter because it's going to include things that will not only help us get through winter, but actually thrive in winter. And we want to focus on its beauty and all of the possibilities. And guide each other in embracing the opportunities for stillness and creativity and restoration and all those things. Yeah. And so if you haven't heard us talk about the Slow Living Retreat yet, we will be opening up the retreat on Friday night, December 3rd with a welcome gathering. And so we'll meet each other and get acquainted. And then Our day on Saturday begins with yoga, and then we'll have a community coffee chat with the two of us. So it's kind of like a live podcast recording. And then we go into three full workshops. So the workshops we have are a fermentation workshop. We'll be learning specifically, we've been working with Kirsten to come up with some gift fermentation ideas. So hopefully you can learn to make these things in the workshop and you can use them as holiday gifts, which is fun, or to share with your loved ones over the holidays. And then we have an embroidery workshop with Christy Johnson, who's a beautiful textile artist. And we have a sustainable design for slow living class or intentional design for slow living with sustainability in mind with Eva Cosmos Flores, who is a really beautiful stylist and chef and cookbook author. If you're not already following these ladies, you definitely should. We've loved working with them all and they all have their own interviews on the Good Dirt podcast. (laughs) So you can go back and listen to those as well. Yeah. I love the way we're developing all these connections and community and we can circle back around all these people we've gotten to know through the podcast and in the Almanac. It's just really wonderful to cultivate these relationships. And to facilitate that during the retreat, we'll be doing a happy hour with small group breakout sessions. So all of you guys that are there can get to know each other a little bit. And then we'll end the gathering on Saturday night with a special musical guest, Eliza Blue, with singing and storytelling and just celebration of the coming of this delicious season. Yeah, we know that it's going to be a lovely day full of learning and community and fun, and we're so excited. And it's only one month away. Gosh, that's so crazy. Yeah. Someone told me yesterday that, that we have like eight Saturdays till Christmas or something. Isn't that crazy? So that means it's time to buy your ticket for Embrace Winter So Living Retreat, which is December 3rd and 4th. And if you've been thinking you were going to sign up, but you haven't yet, we want to invite you to do so because we have put together a little something fun. Yeah, we've got some cozy gift bundles that we're going to be sending out to everybody who buys a ticket between now and whenever they run out. And this includes a few special things to go along with our program to help you embrace winter. And we'll be sending these out until they're gone. So we do have a limited number of them. Yeah. And if you've already bought your tickets, don't worry, you're already getting one. You're on the list. You don't have to do anything else. Except tell your friends, your sisters, moms, daughters to come join you at this very wonderful Lady Farmer community event. Speaking of community, our guest today are Our interview guest for today's show is actually a member of the Almanac, our online community. 
Her name is Tierney Monahan. She's been with us since the beginning. She came to the Slow Living Retreat last year, and she is a writer, a beekeeper, and an MBA candidate at the School of Business at Georgetown University right here in D.C. And we're talking to her today about her newly released book, Beyond Honey which is about honeybees and their impact on our society, including stories about economic, entrepreneurial, and environmental impact. These stories show how these tiny creatures affect our lives for the good. She also shares about the benefits and challenges of our interconnected world, specifically the relationship between humans and the environment. The book was published in August 2021. Before coming to Georgetown, Tierney spent many years as an educator, community outreach specialist, and development professional at nonprofits in Canada, Ecuador, Italy, and Washington, D.C. She received her B.A. from McGill University in Montreal, and in her free time, she enjoys gardening, hiking, reading, and creating art. We love talking to Tierney, so now we'll let her tell you her story of becoming a beekeeper, what she's learned and experienced with these fascinating creatures and her journey writing this book, Beyond Honey. So here's Tierney Monahan. Tell us something of your background and what led you to what you're doing today and writing of this book. Just tell us a little bit of backstory here. Sure. I have to start with my childhood. I grew up in a small town in northern New Jersey. My mom was a very skilled gardener and loved being outside and in nature. She was the first person that really instilled that love of being outside and getting her hands dirty in the garden. And really, that's sort of where the love of all things environmental, all things to do with bugs and bees and (laughs) everything in between. And really, I think what's become important for me as I've gotten older. It started there with my mom side by side, just having some fun in our family garden. And then I decided to expand my horizons for college. And I ended up in a university in Canada, Montreal. And so really since then, I've lived in a big metropolitan area since I first left my hometown. And I think over time, that connection with nature got a little bit lost just because of the busyness of my life and my schedule and also just being surrounded by concrete all the time. So I started really becoming more desirous, I think, of reforming that connection that I had had when I was younger. I just felt more myself being outside and and being in nature. And so I started looking at opportunities really to do that. And I did composting course in DC. And then I also looked into opening up my own space the way that I could, little pots here and there in my apartments. And then that led me to beekeeping. But the beekeeping took another year to really start because I was put on the waiting list of the course in DC, which is always very, very popular. And the first step was I just wanted to increase the yield of my garden. And I thought, okay, I read a lot about pollinators and how important they are. And it was that one little opportunity that I could do in a city. I think chickens have been banned. They were allowed for a little while. And then now they're banned again in DC. Oh, really? I didn't know that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So honeybees are one of the only agricultural animals that you can work with in the city limits. So that's sort of what I was drawn towards to increase that connection little by little. And the course itself was amazing. It was from January to March and it's changed my life. I've been involved with the community now for three or four years and 
it's just a really beautiful, open set of people. I think beekeeping attracts good people who are willing to work together and work for others and work to better the environment. So it's a good group to be a part of. And the book started as part of my grad school course requirements. What were you studying in grad school? So I'm finishing up my MBA uh, at Georgetown, and I'll be finished within the next few months in December, which is great. And the course itself, it was not a mandatory course, it was an elective course, but it was called Content Entrepreneurship. So the idea was that if you create something smaller, like a podcast or a book, you can learn the skills necessary to go on to create larger ventures, like your own business or a larger enterprise. So we were tasked with figuring out a topic and also just whether or not we wanted to move forward with more of an audio or a written project. And I had always wanted to write a book ever since I was little. As I mentioned, I'm from a really small town. So I think I had pretty much read most of the, the children's section pretty early on. And then we had to move on to the county library because there wasn't enough books. So cute. <laughs> By this time, had you become a beekeeper? Yes. So I had been a beekeeper for about two and a half years by the time I picked the topic and decided to delve more deeply into that space because I was so interested in it. And I wanted to share what I had found with others, especially people who aren't as involved in the community or are a little bit fearful of bees. Or I just, I understood that it was one of the topics that would come up in conversation pretty often. Just my friends were really curious. My family was curious. It's something that was more unique and I wanted to explore it just for my own knowledge, but also to share it with the people that I love who are not skeptical, but just a little bit less informed and curious, let's say. Yeah. You know, we lived in DC for five years before we moved out to the farm and I belonged to a local garden club and um, they had a couple of meetings on bees and stuff. And I was so surprised and pleased to learn that Washington DC has a really rather healthy and robust bee population. I didn't realize that. And I thought that was so cool because that's been several years ago now, like, you know, way back when there was so much talk about the colony collapse syndrome. And I was sort of happy and proud that in our area, that wasn't the big problem that you were hearing out. So I guess you were part of that vibrant thing going on in DC was the growing bees yeah, and you still are doing it. Yeah. Shout out to DC Beekeepers Alliance. Yeah. I also owe a lot of credit to Montgomery County Beekeepers Association as well. So in tandem, the two organizations have really helped me learn more and more. There's amazing mentors. The community is really involved not only with bees, but with environmental conservation efforts in the area and is really an amazing resource. I mean, that's one thing that I do recommend is that if anyone's interested, uh, start there because it's very difficult to do alone and it's not recommended because it's best to learn from people who know this specific region, the specific area, the problems that we're facing. So anyone that's listening in your areas, check out your local beekeeping association. They'll be able to give you tips and really welcome you in and help you in this journey. So you just moved to Virginia. So are you joining that specific bee association? And like, do you have a hive and did you bring it with you? I'm so curious. Yeah. Yes. So I will stay connected definitely with the DC beekeepers, especially until I graduate. And so 
That's my primary resource right now and primary community. And I don't have any hives right now. I volunteer at Georgetown's with the B Campus project there. Okay. And there's also a lot of other volunteering opportunities <laughs> throughout the region. I did have bees and that's one of the stories that I write about in the book that unfortunately the hives that I did have, uh, one died due to a number of different factors and the other one absconded, which means it essentially leaves to find a more suitable home. So I had two failures, but it taught me a lot. And I'm looking forward to getting back into it after I graduate. It's just been a little bit too much of a time commitment sure. um, yeah. to be able to do it properly and, and to not be a harm rather than a help. So what's really cool is you've had this passion project and then you kind of in tandem with your schooling, turn it into this book and, and you're launching this thing. So I don't know what your plans are like post-graduation and as you look forward in the future, but it seems like for now, it's just like a really beautiful passion project that you've just really turned into something really tangible. Do you plan to take it on and what's the next iteration of this, do you think? Or is it just kind of something that you love doing and will always kind of keep cooking in the background? I think definitely keep it cooking mm -hmm. as long as I can. I love this community and I, I don't want to ever go backwards. I'd, I'd love to move forward with whatever community that I'm a part of wherever I am living. So I foresee if I do stay in this area that I'll continue to be a part of the community that I know here. Otherwise, I would definitely look up wherever the next place is, uh, anything happening in that area. I am looking to pivot post-graduation into a different industry, but it's still to be determined. But bees will be a part of it no matter what, whether that remains as a hobby or as part of my future endeavors um, in terms of running my own enterprise. That's awesome. That's so wonderful. Yeah. So... I'd love for you to share with our listening audience, why are bees so important to us? And I think in general out there, people know bees are important and they know that it's they're in trouble and that we need to watch out for them and take care of them. But I don't think many people really appreciate the profound impact that bees have on our everyday life. And so what do you tell a person that's saying, oh, yeah, you know, let's be nice to the bees. They're good. They help us have pretty flowers. So what do you tell them? You really want to educate a person on the importance of bees? Well, the number one reason that bees are important is for pollination for both humans and non-human life forms. So animals, other species rely on bee pollination for the production of food. That's the number one reason. And that's the reason uh, why honeybees are particularly prolific and there's a whole industry behind it. It's because it's tied to our food system. And so if people ask, that's sort of the number one thing that um, automatically without bees and without other pollinators like beetles or bats, birds, butterflies, really like our food system would be much less diverse. Um, there would be some breakdowns in the food chain for sure, as well as non-human life would also suffer. So other animals who rely on the pollination for food. And then beyond that, they are a barometer for the ecosystem. So I like to say that they signal for us, you know, if there's issues, if there's problems in the ecosystem. So one example that is clear that is affecting bees and humans likewise is pesticides. And if the bees aren't doing properly, they're not doing well, there's definitely a warning sign. It's, it's not a catastrophic emergency situation. I don't want to alarm anyone, but it's one instance where we, we can see, okay, something is off kilter here, something is off balance. And it's usually due to human activity. And unfortunately, human interventions that are not really thought through in the long term. 
you know, they're, they're thought through, okay, short term, let's grow this crop to make money and, and to make sure that not only our company is doing well, but also the, the people we're feeding. It's all good. I mean, it, we, we should be concentrating and helping people to have nutritious food. However, pesticides, for example, is one of those issues that it's complicated because without them, you know, there's a lot of waste, there's a lot of rotten food, depending upon on the source. And yet with them, <laughs> there's all these ripple effects. We have some backyard hives. We don't keep them ourselves. There is a guy that comes and takes care of the hives and gets the honey out. And then he shares the honey with us. That's our agreement. And we're really happy with that arrangement. And also adjacent to our land is a large hay field. And I happen to know the hay farmer. And he told me that after eight or nine years, he was going to have to spray pre-emergence because the field had degraded to the point where his hay was not coming out as well. And I was really sad about that. But I understood that, you know, it's his business, it's his livelihood, and he was kind enough to let me know. Do you know about how pre-emergence might affect bees and what the distance of the impact is and that sort of thing? I mean, it's certainly complicated because as you mentioned that there is this tension between a livelihood and, and being able to produce the crops yeah. while also maintaining an ecosystem balance for all to flourish. And that's very, very difficult. Yeah. If we just leave everything alone, then there's also some issues, mm -hmm. right? It's so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is so complicated. And it's not not just the pesticides, but there's so many other factors that are troubling. And some of them we can control more than others. I would like for you to clarify something for me and the other listeners. The difference between honeybees and native bees and where they intersect and like, where do honeybees even come from? I mean, they're native to somewhere. What are honeybees? Were they developed for the food system? Sure. So native bees are actually the majority of the bees that exist. There's about 20,000 species of bees and honeybees are just one of those 20,000. And honeybees are non-native to the United States. They were brought from Europe originally. So the one, the bees that we use mainly in the United States is the European honeybee. Although there are other honeybees that exist, there's a African honeybee as well as an Indian honeybee and many others, but those are the, the main three. So for that reason, because they are non-native to the United States, there can be issues between honeybees and native bees in terms of one, our main focus on honeybees over native bees uh, because they are critical to pollination and our food production. And so because they have such an impact on that in terms of revenues and that entire industry, there is a lot of focus on honeybees um, because they benefit us uh, the most, if that makes sense. Native bees, there's so many different types. I could get into, you know, naming all the different types, but we have mason bees and digger bees. And a lot of these native species are solitary bees. So they don't live in community like the honeybee. They are on their own. Um, they also typically will nest in the ground or in dirt, not as much in, you know, creating a comb in the same way that a honeybee would. And really, they're both important for biodiversity because native bees are here in this area. It's really beneficial to, to keep that population going because unfortunately, if there are not only non-native species like the honeybee, but also non-native plants, 
there can be this habitat loss or, or degradation over time because the non-native species, not always, but a lot of the time can actually take over and be almost a dominant species. And this can lead to problems just because the native bees suffer from that intervention. Mm-hmm. And really, they support the growth of the trees, plants, and flowers that serve not only for pollination and food, but also as shelter and wildlife habitats for animals. So the growth of, of trees and bushes, it's not only producing the fruit, but also producing those plants and making them you know, grow to create a, a more healthy ecosystem. So we really do need to take care of both. Uh, the focus is a lot of the time on honeybees because they benefit humans the most in terms of you know, providing that commodity product to sell. But native bees are just as important, if not more important, because there's a lot more of them. And also they're able to thrive in so many different areas of the world. And I imagine that some of the native bees are very specific pollinators of very specific native plants. Like you hear about the milkweed as being the only plant that the monarch butterfly breeds and thrives on. And the monarch butterfly is a very specific pollinator for certain plants and foods. So I guess it's like a you pull one of those things out and you've got all sorts of like side effects of something not being pollinated properly by the right insect. I think I used the example of tomatoes and eggplants and they're not typically pollinated by honeybees. It's mostly native bees that pollinate those two crops, for example. Wow. Especially coming from the summer season of tomatoes, we need our native bees for our our tomatoes. So does that mean that the farmers that are growing those things have to watch out for their native bee population in a way? Or is that something that's on their radar? Or I don't know if it would necessarily be on their radar. And there's honestly, because they're not managed and a managed species, there's not a lot you can do apart from lowering your pesticide use and and providing water and and making sure you're, you know, not destroying the the habitat around the area. You're planting native species, not a ton of non-native species. You can control the environment a little bit, but in terms of the population itself, there's not a way to, I don't know, observe and manage them in the same way. We hear a lot about how bees are in trouble and things we need to be doing to mitigate that and to save them and buying local honey, you know, all of these things that we hear about. And I guess we're just wondering from your perspective, if you think things are like getting better, whatever that means, or what you think about the conversation and the public awareness, at least from my perspective, it seems it's a little bit more mainstream than it has been. So I'm just curious your perspective on that. Yes, I would say that it is changing for the better. I'm trying to be an optimist and I wanted to write, especially the book, to be a little bit more hopeful to, yes, talk about the history and and understand what are the issues that we're facing, but also to point out the good that can be done, the behaviors that we can change. And I agree with you that the awareness and the general information is being shared more in the mainstream. And even, you know, you look around and you can see bees on tote bags in the grocery store. There maybe is, you know, little facts that that talk about where the food is coming from. And also, I think just the larger ecosystem of the food system in the United States in particular is, is becoming 
it's, it's more transparent where things are coming from. The consumers are demanding more transparency and understanding where food is coming from. What are the practices? I think the farmer's markets, whether you know they're in the city or in other areas, are, are thriving. The pandemic um, highlighted the huge issues in our food system and how important it is to, to take care of each part of our supply chain. And I think that that awareness is growing. And I think for that reason, there will be necessary changes that we have to make to really allow for bees and, and pollinators to thrive into the future. If we don't change our practices, there will be more issues. So yes, I do think things are changing for the better, but it's dependent on us to, to continue to, to spread the word and also to be willing to make behavioral changes, um, which are hard. Uh, it's hard to change your habits. It's hard to change the way that you live, especially if that takes more time and or more money. And not everyone will be able to do that. And that's a privileged thing to be able to change your habits sometimes. So what is the status of this colony collapse syndrome that we've heard so much about over the last, I would say, decade? Yes, I would say based on the research that I did and in conversations with experts, especially at the University of Maryland, their bee squad and their bee lab is phenomenal. And they were actually, they're one of the primary researchers of this issue, colony collapse disorder. And I think really their body of work in this area is quite fundamental um, for anyone that's looking to learn more. And really they're the story, the end, the conclusion is that there's still these issues are ongoing. However, we're not in a crisis situation. Um, the loss that we experienced in, you know, the early, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, I feel like about, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, those aren't happening at the same rates. However, the same factors that influenced those losses are still at play. So mm. climate change and loss of habitat, pesticides, pests and pathogens, they all play into it. And so each of these pieces of the puzzle, we need to be doing as much as we can to, to sort of mitigate any future challenges. Again, as I mentioned before, it's very hard, um, especially when it's something as large as climate change and changing weather patterns that affect where bees can forage, where plants are able to grow. The bees that are currently in our area, who knows if it continues to get hotter and hotter, they'll have to move north. They'll have to move, you know, into a region that is, you know, will have more flowers and forage available for longer in the season or vice versa. If it's too cold or it depends. That's interesting. And what I hear from that is people wonder what, what can we do? What is something we can do? And it seems like wherever you are, even if you, you know, live in an urban setting or whatever, you can always provide some sort of pollinating plant close by. If you have a garden, if you have a balcony or whatever, something that will serve the pollinators in your area. Is that true? Yes, yes. That's what I want to communicate too, is that not everyone has to become a beekeeper. Right. And actually, we need a lot more people who are friends with the bees rather than beekeepers. Yeah. And there are really small changes that we can make. Planting native plants is one of those ways, even if you have just apartment balcony or community garden plots. Bees in the city actually do very well because there's such a diversity of floral material within a smaller radius. So that is definitely one way to increase the forage for the bees. So instead of having that pristine green grass, which looks so pretty, think about leaving a few weeds and wildflowers <laughs> as well as, you know, the reduction of pesticides. Yeah. And I wanted to add on to you, you had mentioned habits, little habits we can change. So what are some more of those, besides paying attention to the flora around us, does it help if I buy local honey? What are, what are some small things like that? 
Yes, I would say buying local honey is perfect way to support your local beekeepers who are involved in the area and are, are working towards creating that better ecosystem where you live. The quality is also probably better and it tastes better, in my opinion. And it can help depending upon if you have seasonal allergies, sometimes having some local honey can, can combat that because it has very small doses of the pollen in the area. But check with your doctor before yeah. <laughs> you have, As any, always, yeah. have any allergies. But beyond that, uh, reducing the use of pesticides and, you know, advocate if you're able to, if you're willing to be involved in your area with the local, the city government or county government to keep beekeeping legal and to support whether or not, you know, the establishment of a beekeeping association, if, it, if one doesn't already exist, you can also leave out some water for the bees to drink. That's one very simple way. Um, you can have like a little feeder for them. How cute. Is there a specific like bee feeder you get or is it you just leave a little bowl? No, you can leave a little bowl. Just make sure you put some stones or or rocks because um, they need something to land on. Um, otherwise they'll drown. But oh, very, very easy uh, to cute. do. And there's also a lot of these um, native bee hotels that are available for purchase, oh. you know, at different areas, um, grocery stores and other vendors. And you can install them on your property and um, just make sure to change them out. Um, you usually have to clean it out, I think, once a year, um, just so that all the little rooms of the of the hotel are clean, because they'll fill them with with dirt and just like pack them full of debris. So that's something easy to do. Yeah, those things are so cute. I know. There's local agricultural fairs in your area to visit them, uh, support them, um, especially if you have little kids. It's so fun to go see all the different animals that are there. And bees are usually featured as one of the, the animals. You can talk to your local beekeepers as well and learn more. That's awesome. Yeah, those are some small things that everyone can do. You don't have to do all of those. Just pick one. Yeah, <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about about honey, the desired product. It's more than just a sweetener. It's got a lot of other uses. So would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I, I named my book Beyond Honey because yeah. I wanted to talk about the impact of honeybees beyond the, the product of honey. Although, as I mentioned before, it's certainly one of the most important products and money-making products. Um, and so therefore, like it's something that will always be one of the focuses talking about bees. So it, it is an agricultural product. It is a commodity, so to speak, mm -hmm. isn't it correct? Yes, yes. I would say if we want to talk about honey itself, so it's obviously very delicious, but honey is not only used as a delicious treat on your bread or having your tea, but it also can be used in wound healing. Um, it has like for antibacterial use. And then the other products of the hive have uses beyond just how the bees choose to use it. So there's not only honey, but there's pollen, propolis, and uh, royal jelly as well. And those, those are the four main hive products. And in many cultures, these products have been used for thousands of years and they almost have, it depends how, how you use it, but they can have medicinal properties. Pollen is a great source of protein. So it's definitely another one of those products that you can purchase and consume. And then propolis is more, they, they take resin from plant materials and use a process like within their bodies to basically, I want to say like ferment, but transform it with enzymatic processes. And it becomes also a great um, antibacterial usage. They use it to line the, the walls of the hive. And there's a lot of throat sprays that use it, have it as one of their ingredients uh, that you can buy. And that also helps with preventing and or like mitigating some of the 
common cold and throat issues that we experience. Yeah, you give that example in um, your book of, I don't remember her name, but the woman that started the company because she had been abroad and had a bad throat infection. And was it the propolis spray that, that cured her? So when then when she went back to, mm-hmm. I think it was Canada, was it? Mm-hmm. She ended up starting a company. She was so impressed with it. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And you talk about a lot of in your book about different organizations and companies that have developed around beekeeping and bee products and the therapeutics of beekeeping. And there are just so many things, as you say, beyond honey that the honeybees offer us and offer our culture and our society, really. Yeah, so beyond honey and beyond the commodity and beyond the hive products themselves, the impact of bees goes beyond, yeah, just those four products. And I think one of the amazing pieces and really the the heart of the book is is all the stories of the people who have been affected by bees and, and really incorporated beekeeping into their lives uh, for the better. And it's amazing to really explore how bees can offer not only change in, you know, an economic prospect and economic development and, and offering, you know, an alternative income source, but to really transform people. And working with the bees is very special. It's a very unique experience that I don't think people really understand until you're next to a hive and and really seeing, you know, all the activity that's going on. To many people, it's very calming because of the rhythm of the sound of the bees. Their movements are very calculated and precise while also being very I think aesthetically beautiful. You know, they're they're always working for the good of the hive. So they're, you know, they're not just meandering <laughs> along in life. However, they're just these beautiful little creatures. And, and honestly, I think a lot of their, their movements are mesmerizing in a way. And that meditative aspect is one of the reasons that people have experienced so much goodness from, from the bees and really have witnessed transformation in their lives. Um, and so a lot of the stories that I share are from people from different walks of life, people who have been first responders and veterans and are, you know, returning to society, um, as well as those who are incarcerated and, and formerly incarcerated and many, many more rural farmers, city dwellers. There's so many people whose lives have been changed um, due to working with the bees and also working in the community of beekeepers. So it's twofold. It's not only that connection with nature and human and nature, human and animal but also human and human and and being in community with others. And so beekeeping offers a really unique trade, a hobby, a career for people who are looking for something that is a little outside of the box because it can be done fairly independently. So it's a perfect opportunity for for those that may have a a difficult time in in extremely social situations um, or can be triggered by very traditional forms of work um, and work-life balance. The benefit is not just on those who practice it, but also on the community as well. So those that become beekeepers feed into this beneficial ecosystem for others that are, you know, not as involved and are sort of the recipients of of that goodness, whether that's, again, the honey product or just the benefits of of a healthier ecosystem. If you've ever had the privilege, this is to anyone out there, of witnessing a swarm. Yeah. That's the perfect <laughs> metaphor, I think, for community cooperation. <laughs> Have you seen one? Mm-hmm. Yep. I've seen it a few times at the farm. It tends to happen in May, 
and sometimes you just look up, usually accompanied by a big buzzing sound, and there's like literal cloud moving off. It's exactly how they did it in the Winnie the Pooh cartoon. Yeah, it That's is. exactly what it is. <laughs> it looks like. just like it. The only thing it's missing is the little Pooh Bear holding on to yeah. the... <laughs> it's true. Tierney, do you get a lot of, like, does everybody in the past three or four years buy you, like, bee gifts? <laughs> like, does everything you own have a bee you on it? a lot it? of bee tchotchkes in your house. <laughs> Yes. Now I am known as like the one friend who's like very into bees and yeah. I have bee earrings. I have a mug. Yeah. I have t-shirts, um, <laughs> note cards. It's the one right. thing everyone asks me about, which I yeah. love. I'm like, this is not all I am. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think we've all had one of those in our life. Tierney, what does the good dirt mean to you? I think for me, I think there's tying it back to a little bit of what we talked about, but just cultivating wholeness where you are and and being able to contribute. Your dirt can be a small pot in your apartment or it can be, you know, a huge field where you're able to to host many, many, many hives. But I think just yeah, cultivating wholeness where you are, where you're able to to give of yourself and contribute um, in small ways. Yeah, goodness can come from like little steps, I think. Oh, that's so lovely. That's wonderful. And is there anything else you'd like to leave with our audience or what you want people to most understand about beekeeping or the work that you're doing? Yeah, I would just say there's so many beneficial aspects to to working together with nature. So not just with bees, but involving yourself in the dirt or in some way to really be a part of this greater ecosystem. I know that I've really treasured that time. I've experienced you know, deep loneliness and deep worry, like deep desire for that connection uh, with others. And, and I think nature has helped me to, to reconcile some of that and to have that space to, to be thoughtful and reflective and encourage those parts of ourselves that we may have abandoned in search of a, a success or achievement. And I think that's that's one thing that I've I've struggled with. And I think beekeeping has really allowed me to recenter and to return to myself in a way. And I think that's reflected in many of the stories of the others that I share in the book as well, who have just, you know, gotten quiet, gotten a little bit seeing eye to eye with what's around you, taking that time to observe. And that's just been really extremely helpful for me personally. And I think others can benefit from that too, just slowing down and yeah, taking time to appreciate, you know, the gifts that we've been given and and this place that we call home, which is our earth. Thank you so much. That's so true. All of it's so true. And all of you should go and buy Tierney's book. Oh yeah. Where can they buy it? Where can they follow you? Yeah. Tell us all about how to stay in touch with you and followers and your book. The best way to find me is on my website, tierneymonahan.com. And there's links to purchase the book there, as well as really all my social media channels. You can follow me. They're all linked um, on my website. But every social media channel is uh, at Tierney Monaghan. Thank you so much, Tierney. Thank you. This was so, so fun. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Tierney, for sharing your knowledge and your beautiful book with us. And if you are new here and you're not already following us, make sure you follow us at We Are Lady Farmer. We're on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for if you go to 
www.ladyfarmer.com. Also, if you like the podcast and you like all the people we're talking to and you think you'd like to find some other people who also like these sorts of things, the best place to do that is in the Almanac. And the Almanac and our community membership really supports the show. That's the backbone of the good dirt and everything we're doing here. So if you're enjoying the show, you want more, definitely the Almanac is the best place to find that. And we appreciate it so much. Yes. And don't forget to go buy your retreat tickets for the Lady Farmer Virtual Slow Living Retreat, December 3rd and 4th, coming up in one month. Go buy your tickets now so you can get one of our cozy gift bundles that comes with your ticket while supplies last. So Yeah, we they'll run out and then we'll be really sad. So we want you to get one. <laughs> We're so looking forward to seeing all of you there. And thank you so much for being here. And we'll see you next week. All right. Bye-bye.